Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good morning. And for the parents of kids out there who use smartphones and have all of the apps like Twitter and Facebook and potentially TikTok, you're definitely going to want to hear uh, this story this morning because uh, a new congressional panel on China is scrutinizing the use of TikTok. And uh, my first guest says that TikTok is poisoning the minds of our children and actually endangering our national security. So Jake Denton from the Heritage Foundation in Tech Policy says that it's time for lawmakers to end this. And the only path forward is to ban TikTok nationwide. So Jake, good morning and thanks so much for joining us. And uh, talk first about the dangers of TikTok to children. Uh, What what should parents need to know about this app? Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. So I think what's really important for parents to understand is kind of uh, the times in which they're not looking over their child's shoulder and monitoring that content. You know, TikTok has really captivated, you know, much of the screen time that children have on their devices. And, you know, the, the way the algorithm works is, you know, they might just have 30 seconds of, you know, a really impactful, damaging piece of content that they consume that sticks with them the entire day. And it's really just not possible for the parent to be over their shoulder, you know, throughout that entire duration. And I think what we're seeing more and more often is that, you know, when the kids have the the device on their own and when they're scrolling through these, they're seeing content that's promoting bodily harm, uh, suicide, things that are, you know, going to have lifelong impacts for the child. Um, And, you know, their impressionable minds, they're just not capable of really defending against it. And so they're really just preying upon it. And that's like an entirely different national security component than what we've been focusing on with the data security angle. And so when we're considering, you know, the path forward here, uh, we have to also keep in mind that if there were just a U.S. sale, this type of content feed, the things that the kids are seeing would just continue. Wow. And so, um, so Jake, how is TikTok in, in that sense different than maybe some of the other platforms? I mean, obviously parents should be uh, looking over their children's shoulders and, you know, making sure that they're not consuming content on any app or platform that's damaging that has some of um, those issues or pornography or, you know, other things that are so readily accessible in today's society. But does TikTok pose a particularly a different, unique, or significant problem comparatively with other apps? apps? Yeah, so I think what's important to understand when you consider, you know, where it fits in the, the broader landscape of social media is that most of the other platforms are built around kind of your social circle in real life, whether that be, you know, your friends from school or, um, you know, maybe some public figures you look up to. Um, but it's very rare that you're seeing content from kind of outside of your already curated bubble. What's unique about TikTok is that it kind of captures all of your interests when you engage with different types of short-form content, and it delivers you this kind of curated uh, media stream, which you know might not necessarily be something you otherwise would have stumbled across. These are kind of creators from outside of your region. Um, you're seeing things that you didn't necessarily go out and seek yourself. They're just delivered directly to you. And China's control over that algorithm, uh, we've basically seen that it's promoting forms of content that... Uh, you know, the, the kid necessarily isn't going to um, find on 
Instagram or Facebook. That's not to say that those are necessarily, you know, leaps and bounds better than TikTok, but uh, it is uh, a very important thing to distinguish here. Yeah, and I'm talking with Jake Ditton, who is the tech policy um, advisor for Heritage Foundation uh, here in D.C. And, you know, there's there's now a bipartisan uh, panel in Congress that uh, is related to China, but is also looking at TikTok. And uh, the, the national security issues also relate to privacy content. Now, I don't use TikTok for that reason. Uh, President Trump was also uh, looking, when he was in the administration, was looking at uh, banning TikTok as well and said that that was a danger to our national security. Um, so can you tell us more about that particular angle and why uh, Congress, and, and it seems like a bipartisan uh, panel, is actually very interested in potentially banning TikTok, which, I mean, you rarely get anything bipartisan in D.C. these days. Yeah, so the security concerns have been something we've been aware of for quite some time now. You mentioned President Trump's attempted ban, you know, a few years ago now at this point. Um, you know, TikTok is unique in the ways that it captures all for- sorts of data uh, you know, whether it be the keystroke logging, uh, so that means anything you type into your keyboard, they can capture. Uh, you know, if you have other tabs open on your device, they can monitor those tabs. If there's, you know, uh, the child's uploading a video of themselves, they're capturing the biometric data, you know, the, what's on your face, you know, what that looks like. And that's all captured and put into essentially a comprehensive data profile that will follow you for the rest of your life. And so whether it's the kid who, you know, is the son of a corporate executive or maybe he becomes the next congressman, they have all of this data on you and it will never go away. Um, The collection started years ago and it's just getting more and more sophisticated. So the concern only gets uh, bigger and bigger as, you know, the data gets uh, the data profile expands. So how likely do you think it is that Congress will take that step and actually uh, get a TikTok ban? Is that something that we can potentially expect or what is your projection? I think it's trending more favorably towards a full ban. However, uh, you know, in typical D.C. fashion, they'll never let something go through without, you know, some fireworks and, uh, you know, a little bit of theater. Uh, We have an upcoming hearing in the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, that's going to allow, you know, those members to question the CEO of TikTok ask them a lot of questions. But, you know, when we think about the application and the problems that have prompted this discussion in the first place, we have plenty of evidence to ban it outright right now. And so there's just kind of a desire here, I think, to, you know, get that kind of spectacle, that that media moment. Um, But there is still a long ways to go in terms of building the coalition. We've seen, you know, some Senate Intel Committee folks on the left come around. Um, but this still really is lopsided towards, you know, conservatives being concerned. And I believe it's up to still 30-ish Democrats that have active profiles on the application. So um, this isn't necessarily consensus yet, but it's trending more favorably than it was even just a few weeks ago. Yeah, I saw uh, Adam Schiff's TikTok when he first announced his uh, his U.S. Senate run. So that was interesting that one of his first ads was on TikTok and I think speaks uh, to that wing of the Democrat Party. <laughs> but I'm talking with Jake Denton, who is uh, in tech policy for the Heritage Foundation. And, you know, Jake, this really emphasizes how parents uh, need to be aware of what their children are doing on their smartphones and uh, making sure that there aren't data privacy issues. I mean, even things like opening um, your phone and using the um, the face recognition software. I mean, a lot of people uh, don't even know how many how much concern that is in the criminal justice realm. I mean, uh, when you have a, a Fourth Amendment privacy 
uh, element there that the, um, the police officers can't just come in and unlock your phone. And there's been a lot of lawsuits and other um, other policy around what uh, Apple and um, even Androids have said about giving out um, data that's in a locked phone. Uh, police officers can just hold it up to your face and then, you know, your your phone will just unlock. And so for a lot of different reasons, I think there's a lot of things that um, not only parents, but just concerned citizens about our own privacy and ability to not allow our uh, content to get out otherwise, whether it's to um, law enforcement that may not uh, deserve to know that because that's why we have constitutional protections, uh, but a lot of other things. People really need to understand this and take it seriously. And that raises another question about the Digital Bill of Rights. And that's something that um, you and I have discussed um, quite a, a lot in the last few months. And President Trump, um, as one of his first policy steps with his uh, 2024 campaign, actually came out with a uh, a Digital Bill of Rights uh, policy suggestion, which I think was really uh, good. And I think any solid uh, Republican candidate for the nomination uh, in 2024 needs to take a serious look at a Digital Bill of Rights when we as conservatives are concerned about content moderation, censorship, and freedom of speech. So uh, talk about first what a digital bill of rights is and why Heritage Foundation and you specifically are very much in favor of that. Yeah, so this is probably still a foreign concept for many people. It's something that uh, kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but, you know, we've seen kind of growing issues in where uh, a lot of our constitutional freedoms, you know, people just aren't applying to uh, the digital domain. And we're encountering a lot of problems on the digital domain that, you know, haven't really been uh, stipulated or carved out into law yet. And so, you know, whether it be content moderation, which has captured a lot of those um, kind of eyes, everyone is uh, very concerned about, you know, being censored on the platforms or what we've just been talking about, data privacy, uh, is this kind of document would be something in this law would be something that protects you in all aspects of your life online. Um, and so as this, you know, society continues to digitize, it's going to be increasingly important that we're not, you know, just kind of, uh, I guess, victim to any sort of government overreach or, you know, basically having to follow the lead of these corporate entities in Silicon Valley that have already made it known that, you know, they really don't like our way of life. And so in order to kind of preserve um, our values and our freedoms, we have to have something like this that really protects us. Absolutely. One of the critical aspects of a digital bill of rights, I think, as well, is ensuring that we don't see uh, the same type of conduct from these big tech giants that are colluding with government and censoring Americans, uh, basically acting as an arm or agent of the government, like we have seen with the Twitter files that uh, Elon Musk has released. I think it's up to like 15 or 16 drops now. And the uh, all of the files coming out of that are just incredible as far as what actually happened uh, during the COVID pandemic um, and others to, to silence specific point of views. And so what uh, what specifically might a digital bill of rights contain that in your opinion would, would uh, be features enough that would at least protect and preserve um, Americans' rights to not only have privacy online, but against this type of censorship from big tech? Yeah, so I think the Twitter files is really the perfect story to kind of facilitate the the drafting and ultimately the passing of something like a digital bill of rights simply because we've seen every aspect of kind of the storyline um, basically necessitate a document of this nature. So I think the first one that's very interesting is 
uh, the formalized relationship between a lot of these three-letter agencies and these social media companies that went on behind the scenes, you know, without knowledge of the American people, um, whether that be, you know, requests to take down certain, uh, you know, pages, whether that be requests to have access to direct messages, something that you believe you have privacy to, you know, it's a peer-to-peer communication. Um, you know, these are all things that were happening and that would be ultimately protected in, you know, a digital bill of rights where, you know, it's explicitly stipulated that, you know, there can't be these uh, basically formalized relationships between the uh, social media company and the federal government in order to surveil or censor the American public, oh, you know, without a court order or, uh, you know, following the actual law. Uh, what we've basically seen is this kind of extrajudicial um, discretion from, you know, bureaucrats in Washington to even just, you know, someone who's behind a desk in Silicon Valley who's, you know, been unofficially deputized to monitor all these Americans' content and decide, you know, what is free speech, what is, um, you know, acceptable content. These are all things that would give actual legal standing and, you know, legal guidelines. Uh, to make sure that, you know, your rights are protected and you're not disadvantaged, you know, whether it be in a professional environment because you don't have access to these platforms or, you know, we really will be able to avoid this uh, development of a social credit system. Uh, and so this is a largely a defensive document. This is something that's going to protect us as we move into the future. Yeah, and, and Jake Denton, uh, who's in tech policy with the Heritage Foundation, I think that's so incredibly important, uh, the point that you emphasize about the Digital Bill of Rights to make sure that we are protecting freedom of speech in the 21st century and beyond uh, as the public square really has become largely digitized. And it's fascinating to me um, as a lawyer and someone who just absolutely loves the U.S. Constitution and our system of government and, you know, all of the philosophy behind that to see how, you know, our founders understood that freedom of speech and the right to public discourse uh, has to be protected against censorship, but then how that concept translates into a new landscape when we have, you know, all of these things that they couldn't have possibly contemplated, but the principle remains the same. So, you know, these are things that I think that we need to engage as conservatives and how best in just the last 30 seconds I have with you, uh, how best can uh, people and concerned parents uh, get involved and let their members of Congress know that they care about um, freedom of speech and making sure that, you know, TikTok bans happen, all of those things. Yeah, whether it be a, a town hall that, you know, your your member is hosting, whether it be, you know, just sending them a tweet or an email, it's important to voice that, you know, you don't want your child on TikTok and you don't want it available to the public. Um, and then just across the board, I think it's important to monitor your child's social media use and really put your family's interests first over, you know, maybe the 100%. social aspects of their, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jake Denton, really appreciate your comments this morning. You can follow him at Real J Denton on Twitter, and we'll be right back with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. The credit card debt happened when my daughter was born. I was using one credit card account to roll over into another credit card account, and it was snowballing. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. When I first called Trinity, the representative understood the need based on the situation. There were great people to work with. 
from the first phone call that I made, they had me on a track to mitigate the credit card debt. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. Working with Trinity gave me the ability to save thousands of dollars. My name's Doug, and thanks to Trinity, I'm debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. This is Pause to Pray, a chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Greg Gianforte, Governor of Montana. He has served as governor since 2021 and is a former member of Congress. Luke 12:48 reminds us of the responsibilities of a leader. From everyone who has been given, much shall be required. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Greg Gianforte as he leads the state of Montana. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Inviting a kid to a church youth group or Bible study could soon be illegal in Nebraska. State Senator Megan Hunt introduced a bill that would make it a Class 1 misdemeanor to bring a child under the age of 19 to what she called a religious indoctrination camp. She offered an amendment that would also ban anyone from attending a religious ceremony where communion wine is served. Hunt says she realizes her bill doesn't have a chance in you know where of passing, but she's doing it to make a point. Her legislation is in response to a Republican effort to ban children from attending adult drag shows. She says that kids are more likely to be attacked by predators inside a church than a drag bar. Well, that's simply not true. But we should take Senator Hunt at her word. She wants to criminalize Christianity. I'm taking a group of 100 listeners to the Holy Land in November. If you would like information, go to ToddStarns.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, Democrats have made no secret about their plans to force state-funded abortion on demand. This has been their platform for years. It went from safe, legal, and rare to a matter of convenience. And abortion is a topic that we discuss um, all across the American Family Radio Network uh, quite frequently, actually. And um, and it's not just because this is, I believe, one of the most fundamentally important issues to the future of America, uh, to start with the fundamental right to life, but also because abortion uh, and the topic surrounding that and the anti-life Democrats, just how 
how we talk about abortion. Uh, they would like to suggest that um, we are anti-abortion, where really they are anti-life. So I don't even like to use the term pro-choice because they like to characterize and use terms in language that make their position <clears throat> seem reasonable and different than what it actually is, which is the intentional medical intervention to specifically cause the death of a child. And Democrats now uh, in the Biden administration are trying to take this to the next level. And uh, they have announced potential plans through HHS Secretary uh, Javier Becerra, who told uh, Axios, one of the uh, the platforms, I actually read them. Sometimes they're a little good. They trend a little uh, leftist, <laughs> to say the least. But um, he said that Democrat lawmakers have urged the Department of Health and Human Services and President Biden to take a step in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and say that there is a, quote, full-scale reproductive health crisis, yes, a health crisis <laughs> across the United States that would allow a declaration of emergency. So this is exactly like what we've seen with the so-called public health emergency edict abuse during COVID. And so when Becerra and Biden are articulating that they may uh, declare such an emergency, they are just simply looking for any way to push their anti-life agenda into the states via federal agency. And they have not articulated an actual basis to justify declaring an emergency. It's just a pretext to have the outcome that they prefer in policy. Now, let's let's talk about a couple of aspects of this. So first of all, in general, whether we're talking about abortion or any other so-called emergency that the Democrats want to suggest is going on in America, like climate crisis or um, the COVID uh, declaration of emergency. Now, Joe Biden is saying that finally he's going to... to say that the COVID pandemic is totally over and, and uh, strip back all of the uh, pandemic implementations on May 11th. Because, of course, the science somehow suggests that we can just take that specific date. Well, of course, he pulled it out of a hat. And this just shows how the use of so-called emergencies allow the Democrats access to these emergency authorized powers that only allow them to project their preferred outcome on policy. So health emergencies and emergency powers in general, I think really need to be contemplated by the legislative branch and restricted a lot further because in the sense that they were contemplated and most, um, in fact, all states, uh, but to a varying degree, have legislation concerning how a declaration of emergency and emergency powers are given on the state level to governors. And some of those things are very good, like the ability of governors like Ron DeSantis in the aftermath of the hurricane last year was able to declare an emergency and uh, send some state resources to help with uh, things that were needed to reconstruct bridges and um, you know some other services that the state uh, can provide to the community under a declaration of emergency. But that is specifically intended in all states and even on the federal level just for an actual emergency. So how do we define emergency? Well, it's not just, especially in this context, that the Democrats just don't like what the legislature is contemplating. Hey, we don't like the law, so we're going to declare an emergency. And as the executive branch, 
step over into the legislative arena and try to legislate and try to force our view. So just because uh, they don't like the outcome does not mean that they can declare an emergency. An emergency was always intended to be a very, very narrow, specific window to address a problem that the legislature could not convene in time to address. And so something, for example, like a weather-related emergency... Obviously, we can all see the common sense to have the governor be able to just declare the emergency and get those services provided immediately. The legislature can't convene, discuss, hear from the community, and go through the entire legislative process to respond to that specific and acute uh, damage that's being done to the state. But an emergency, especially related to something like what they're calling a reproductive health crisis simply just means that they don't like that the legislature is actually contemplating what measures and regulation will be in each state around abortion. And this is a violation of the separation of powers because the Dobbs decision very clearly and rightly recognized that the Constitution provides the legislature with the ability to legislate. And we see that in the very first sentence of Article 1, Section 1 of the United States Constitution, that all legislative authority is given to Congress. And then we see that as well on the state levels in the state constitutions. Legislative authority is for the legislature, not the executive. But what the executive has continued to try to do is utilize any sort of power that they can possibly gain through these types of executive orders, declarations of emergency, to push through policy that rightly should be contemplated in the legislature. And why is that important to us as citizens of this great country? Well, the huge part of this and why our founders separated the powers into three branches was not only so that you don't have unilateral action uh, like that from the executive, but because our representatives hear from us. We have a right as citizens to go and testify in front of our legislatures when they are contemplating Uh, things like abortion regulation or any other law in the United States. We have a right to be heard. That doesn't happen when the executive is unilaterally saying, we're declaring an emergency, we're going in and we are uh, pushing policy and our preferred outcome onto the American people. So it's very critical that we continue to separate powers and we don't allow our executive to violate the separation of powers and attempt to Uh, infringe upon the right of the legislatures to contemplate and to determine law. So this is a huge story that hardly anyone is covering. And I'm certainly not seeing, I mean, the big story when I got up this morning and, you know, turned on uh, the news media just because I always like to just see what are they talking about? And are they talking about anything um, that's actually worthwhile? The big story today, what's leading the headlines is that Tom Brady retired from the NFL again. I mean, okay, great. You know, that that's fine to talk about, but we need to make sure that we are informed as Americans who care about this great country and make sure that we don't just rely on what's being talked about by the talking heads on television. Um, you know, this is one of the things that I personally have been frustrated with. Uh, my stint in uh, you know, the mainstream media and as a guest on all the major networks across the last um, you know, probably six years it's been now, 
uh, that a lot of the topics that are curated by the mainstream media are just, frankly, not even worth discussing. I mean, there was a a time when, um, just last year, when the topic that I was given for a major news network was to talk about Jill Biden's dress versus Melania Trump's. And I just thought, why are we talking about this? It ultimately doesn't matter. And those types of really easy to uh, to discuss uh, kinds of topics really don't relate to anything that we need to be concerned about as conservatives. So um, I would just really urge everyone who is listening to this program, well, great, you are, you've turned off the mainstream media, you're tuning in to a radio network that cares about conservatism, cares about the biblical worldview perspective. That is great. And make sure that you are curating your own content, not just allowing whatever's in your newsfeed on social media or whatever is given on uh, the mainstream news networks to guide what you think is going on in society, because that will uh, curate the content for you and will ignore some of the bigger stories. And this is a huge one. So um, so the other thing about these so-called uh, health emergencies or just emergencies in general, but, um, but specifically related to health in, in the context of COVID, remember, this was the type of abuse of emergency authority that the Democrats tried to use in a lot of states to shut down our ability to go to church on, on Sundays or, or whatever day uh, you go to church. They tried to shut down churches and say that it was fine according to the science that strip clubs, marijuana dispensaries, uh, big box stores, and you know virtually anything else that they dis- they deemed an essential service to society, that's fine because COVID is somehow uh, really, really smart and won't get you if you're in Target uh, getting toilet paper. But if you go and you try to worship God in the context of church, well, that's far too dangerous. There is no legal justification or rationale that the government gets to decide for you and me what is an essential service. And they tried to do that in order to uh, put a lot of problems on small businesses that had to shutter and to uh, to simply support the bigger conglomerates that they preferred. And so that type of preference is not only completely irrational, according to the quote-unquote science, but it's also absolutely unconstitutional because there's no power that is given to the federal government to decide for you and me what is or is not an essential service. Now, each company can determine that for themselves, and the federal government when they're determining uh, what is an essential personnel, um, when, for example, if, if they're looking at a government shutdown, well, the federal government can decide that for itself under most circumstances, but they can't decide that for you and me and what services are essential. For us, absolutely, going to church is always essential, and that is part of what our Constitution preserves and protects our right to freely exercise our religion. And these types of emergency declarations are a really, really scary way that the government and specifically uh, those who want to usurp the actual given authority, uh, they want to encroach upon the province of the legislature and don't care that the people's representatives should actually be part of the legislature and represent all of these issues and argue and debate. They don't care about that. 
They just want the power and the authority. And that actually isn't just limited to the Democrats. Most often during the pandemic, uh, that was utilized most frequently in an unconstitutional manner by Democrats. But even some Republicans, on especially on the federal level and even on the state and local level, sometimes think that they get to decide for you what is in your best interest. And they don't care that we live in a government system that limits their power, that gives and protects powers to we the people. That's one of the most fundamentally overlooked uh, parts of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment is that when our federal government recognizes that only specifically enumerated powers in the Constitution are given to the federal government. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the federal government operated that way? But the Ninth and Tenth Amendment recognize that any powers not specifically enumerated to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people. So we, the people, actually have constitutionally delegated powers. What are they? Well, anything that has not been specifically delegated to the federal government or in our states through our state constitution specifically delegated to the states to legislate, to administrate, or um, in the judicial branch to actually adjudicate. So there are a lot of things that we, the people, have the power to determine for ourselves and for our families. And this is why constitutional law and the whole understanding of how our system of government works is incredibly important for us to understand as citizens so that when we look at stories like the HHS Wang and uh, a full-scale reproductive health crisis issue, we can say not just that we don't like it or that we're opposed to it because it's a Democrat administration, but that we can point out exactly why it is unconstitutional. It's not just that we don't like it and we oppose it, but that they can't. And that is always our best argument is to say not just that we oppose the policy or that we want to debate it, but they actually do not have the power to do what they are attempting. And if our court system and our judiciary would actually rein in both the legislative and the executive branches, even just on the federal level, rein them in to what is actually given under our United States Constitution, we would see an immediate change in Washington because they could not do probably 95% of what they attempt. So I would encourage everyone out there, especially with your children, read the United States Constitution. It's only a couple of pages. And look at the separation of powers. Understand what subject matter is given to the legislature on the federal level. Read your own state constitution. Most people are very familiar with the U.S. Constitution, but have you ever read your state constitution? Be familiar with this so that you can make the best argument. The Bible says that we are supposed to uh, firmly advocate and always give a reason for the hope that lies within us to have knowledge of the truth of God. We have to be well-versed in theology. We also, as good citizens, have to be well-versed in our American law. So we'll be right back with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning. What do normal human beings want for a six-year-old? 
Bishop E.W. Jackson. To be loved, to be protected, to be shielded from some of the ugliness in the world. But you got these nutcases who want to push on a six-year-old that you are inherently evil because of the color of your skin. Tune in to The Awakening, weekdays at noon central on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios 24-7. It's not a morning show. It's an all-day show fueled by the wit and wisdom of Sandy Rios. If you have a smartphone, I think you should download the AFR app. Sandy Rios 24-7 is on the podcast page at AFR.net. I have, you know, so many listeners from the radio show who are now listening to the podcast. Sandy Rios 24-7. You live my prayers all the time. Sandy Rios 24-7 on the podcast page at AFR.net. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. My name is Abraham Hamilton III and this is the Hamilton Minute. The U.S. Supreme Court issued a statement announcing the marshal of the Supreme Court and her staff have not identified who leaked the draft of the Dobbs opinion that later overturned Roe v. Wade. The statement said the marshal's team had been unable to identify a suspect by a preponderance of the evidence. All that is legally required, however, to identify and arrest the criminal suspect is probable cause. Preponderance of the evidence can only be determined by a judge or jury in a courtroom. This smacks of a cover-up. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. In churches, and a lot of churches today, the issue of identity is sort of like the big elephant in the room. It's in the news, but it's not in the church. So if it's in society, it needs to be something the churches are addressing. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality, is now available for church screenings and events. Every person in America needs to see this. And all pastors need to show this to the church, get the people informed. If the church and Jesus isn't the answer, where is the world going? We want the message of the film to touch as many hearts and lives as possible, and we'd love to join with you to bring the film to your community. So let's say you have a small group or your church, or we've even been bringing the film into some prisons. We want to partner with you. So what we'll do is we'll send you a special kit, and it's completely free, and it'll just have some extra resources to help you promote your event. To find out more about how to host an event, go to inhisimage.movie and click on the Host an Event tab. That's inhisimage.movie. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And a couple more headlines for you this morning. And then we're going to open up the phone lines and you can uh, ask any question that you'd like and uh, comment on anything we've been discussing this week. Or if you have a question about uh, the U.S. Constitution or how you can get involved in your state, really anything, call us at 888-589-8840. That's 888-589-8840. So Mike Lee and Rick Scott, two uh, really, really great people in the Senate, are possibly losing key committee seats, and Scott blames Mitch McConnell. So Rick Scott told Fox News Digital yesterday that Mitch McConnell gets to pick committee assignments. And I think this story was particularly fascinating because we have, uh, as as Republicans and as conservatives, well, I'm unaffiliated, but generally vote Republican, um, 
we have put so much focus on what's going on in the house with the new new majority that I think we really haven't paid as much attention with what is going on in the Senate. And so uh, these are still really important committee assignments. Um, this is also very important in terms of uh, combating some of the more uh, either woke or activist um, judicial appointments or nominees from the Biden administration. Uh, there was one that I saw a clip of last week in uh, the testimony during the nomination in front of the Senate that was just really embarrassing of one of um, Biden's nominees that just didn't have any basic concept of the U.S. Constitution. And I just thought, you know, how how are you planning to be a federal judge? I really don't know. But, um, you know, this is this is one of those things that it just shows that often Democrats are not concerned with what uh, people in their party actually know about the U.S. Constitution. They're only concerned with, will this person advocate for our preferred outcomes? And that's the definition of activism. And, and by the way, a lot of us uh, in, in conservatism tend to use that term activist. And I think we need to be careful to not use that term in the context of government. Because while we can be activists, which is pretty much synonymous with advocate and we can advocate for something or we can be an activist like for pro-life for example uh we should not ever want activism to rule in any way in the government because we in our system of government have to make sure that we are committed to preserving and protecting the limited powers of the federal government and making sure we are protecting our system and we are not looking to manipulate our government system in any way. I mean, certainly we can use it to our advantage. We can look at uh, what the rules allow and then work within the system, but we should never advocate for an outcome over staying within the margins of the Constitution. Uh, and then last story for us before we get to the phone lines is that articles of impeachment were brought against DHS Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, so Representative Andy Beggs, a good friend of this show, is introducing new a, a new impeachment article against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, accusing him of violating his oath of office and failing to enforce U.S. immigration law. It also accuses him of having failed to implement the 2006 Secure Fence, Fence Act, which requires DHS to take actions to achieve and maintain operational control over the border. So I, I have no doubt that this isn't going to get very far, especially with the current composition of the Senate. But I like the fact that uh, Republican representatives in Congress, which have the sole power of impeachment in the House, uh, if you look at Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, articles of impeachment originate in the House. And if passed in the House, then it goes to a trial in the Senate. And we saw that on full display with the two ridiculous impeachments of Donald Trump. But I like this not because the Republicans are using impeachment to weaponize uh, the that power against the Democrats, but rather because this has been sort of a dormant clause that hasn't really been utilized. I am all for using the powers of government as they were intended. That's not activism. That's just being smart. And when when you look at the proper role and function of what impeachment was designed for, it's to hold the executive and the judiciary accountable. We have to have accountability within the co-equal branches of government. Otherwise, you get a runaway judiciary. You get a runaway executive. And if we had a system of government where the legislature was acting as a separate entity from the executive and we weren't... Uh, 
we weren't distributed and, and kind of tribalized based on party. If it was actually the legislature, regardless of party, was looking at being on team legislature, then we would have probably a lot more articles of impeachment until the executive reined themselves in and said, hey, we don't want to get impeached. So we want to make sure that we fulfill our constitutional obligations. So I am a fan of articles of impeachment that are being filed by the Republicans. Again, not not because this is retaliation in any way, but because there are actually constitutional bases for Uh, articles of impeachment to be brought against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, absolutely, and against other members of the executive branch. So with that, let's go to the phone lines if you want to call in and opine, 888-589-8840. And let's go first to uh, Richard from Michigan. Good morning, Richard. Well, hi, good morning. And I would like to talk about the debt, if I may. Okay, the national debt. The national debt, right. And um, when families get in financial trouble, they tend to look around and see if there's anything to sell in order to get rid of their problem. And I was wondering if the United States could do the same thing, like um, sell off some property, possession, like, say, Puerto Rico, and well, help pay you know, off that- the debt. Uh, you know, that's a great question. And um, I would personally not be in favor of that. I don't think that we can um, necessarily, you know, s- sell one of our territories that would be, uh, you know, contemplated in- under a possibly a treaty um, under, you know, Article 6. But, um, you know, but it- but how we are already selling off property um, in the continental United States to China and allowing um, other foreign entities to, Uh, to own land, I think is absolutely ridiculous. So can we probably, I mean, you know, we look at how we've acquired um, other types of land and and we could do that. I think that there are other ways that would be in the best interest of the United States rather than uh, selling off property and how that relates to a territory. I've actually never thought about, I don't know that there would be a uh, justifiable constitutional mechanism to uh, sell a territory. Um, But if you're looking at um, any of the land within the United States, we do have um, federalism and we have sovereignty. And so uh, under Article 4, which is how states join the union, um, states still have sovereignty. And so for the federal government to sell off parts of states, I think is unconstitutional from the perspective that states uh, have to be able to own, in a sense, and maintain uh, their land. But, you know, that's that's a really great uh, question, but also uh, goes to the point that uh, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are beginning to negotiate the debt ceiling increase, which um, is just totally irresponsible. And I love my good friend, uh, Thomas Massey, who actually has a pin that he's wearing around Congress. And um, there have been some pictures posted online that um, he actually wired it somehow to uh, to be a ticker that uh, is actually connected to the national uh, debt clock. And so in Congress, he has basically a badge that's showing just how bad it's getting. So a great question, Richard, and, you know, something certainly to contemplate. And uh, all right, let's go to uh, Barry from Georgia, who has a comment on TikTok. Good morning. Jen. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, calling in. Thank you for taking my time. You know, hey, I'm in full agreement with TikTok. I don't like it. Uh, I have grandkids that use it. But uh, 
where are we on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram? <clears throat> you know, I think Mark Zuckerberg, I think it's reported that he spent over 400 and something million dollars, almost a half a billion dollars in the 2020 election. And, you know, hey, I guess that's okay with people. It seems to be anyway. And then. So the, the, the Zuck Bucks you you're talking a, about? Pardon me? So the Zuck Bucks you're talking about, like the uh, the yeah, ability Zuck, of, yeah. you know, Mark Zuckerberg to go and, and basically under, you know, the auspices of another organization, um, give and donate so much money that affected, you know, the outcome. Um, the response to that is that a, a lot of states and actually through our friends at the Heritage Foundation, um, Hans von Sparovsky, who is a great attorney and he's done a lot of really good work on election integrity. I'll have him on the program sometime. Um, he's done a lot of great work and a lot of uh, states are... Uh, passing legislation that don't allow for um, these so-called Zuckbox to make sure that we don't get those types of influences um, in the manner that we saw in the 2020 election. So, um, so great question, Barry. I, re- I really appreciate it. Let's go to uh, Jim from Houston. Jim, good morning. Hi, Jim. Are you there? Uh, yes. Hi, Jenna. Uh, Good morning. Did uh, did President Trump have proof when he called uh, uh, DeSantis a globalist? I mean, does he just shoot from the hip with that stuff? He needs to have he needs to have proof of just like all of us. I mean, he tell the truth about what's going on. Right. Well, you know, that's been a really hot topic debate, and um, I think it's a great question because what I find um, very disturbing, frankly, about that comment is that um, it's it's hypocritical because on one sense, President Trump is saying, well, I'm responsible for getting DeSantis over the line. And I am, um, you know, I was the one who helped him uh, become the governor of the state of Florida, look at all the great things he's doing. And then in the same breath is saying, well, you know, no one should support DeSantis because he's a globalist and he's terrible. Well, how can he be a great governor and he want, and Trump wants to take credit for DeSantis, but then also call him a globalist? So whether or not um, there's proof of that, I don't think that there has been anything uh, that has come out with DeSantis's policy or even in the time uh, he was in Congress. There are some clips that are floating around from uh, some of DeSantis's comments when he was a congressman. I think they're taken a little bit out of context, but I personally have not seen anything to suggest that DeSantis is a globalist. But, um, you know, that could potentially, if DeSantis enters the race, be a a topic for a debate. And wouldn't we love to see that, a Trump versus DeSantis debate? I do think that DeSantis is being very wise to not even engage those types of comments because he's winning. He is winning by simply uh, putting forth policy and doing a lot of the things that he's doing in Florida while just completely ignoring Trump. Because when Trump gets... Um, the airtime on those things, Trump wins. And so I think DeSantis has kind of learned from the lessons of, of 2016. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes. Uh, let's get to uh, Ron as well, who also has a comment on Trump versus DeSantis. Good morning, Ron, from Illinois. Good morning. Yes, uh, real quick, two things. Um, we, we talk about this uh, Trump and uh, DeSantis feud. Is Trump and DeSantis both are, the, are kind of possible between the, uh, the Republicans and the what? Being sure you claim to be very close to Trump or was at one time, if you have any contact, my suggestion would be coming from a friend like you, they'll tell them you need to team up and and work together. I would love to see Trump um, because he's only going to get four years and the Sands was his pick for vice president, then that would be 
possibly another eight, you know, the four, um, the eight of the sand. Because when he chose 10th, even though some people think of him dearly, if anybody had seen or remembers seeing the funeral of uh, George Bush Sr., everybody was handed a letter. All the presidential and vice presidents was handed this letter, including Pence. Trump did not get one, but everybody was shocked by whatever that letter was supposed to say, including Pence. I don't think he's on our team, but I think DeSantis and Trump would make a great team. So I'm asking you to ask them, put throwing tomatoes at each other, and join teams and get this thing back on track. Well, thanks for your comment, Ron. And, you know, right now the tomatoes are only coming from one side. You know, DeSantis isn't even really engaging. But, you know, I I get this comment a lot, and I've seen this a lot on uh, social media as well, that um, a lot of people are in favor of uh, Trump and DeSantis teaming up. Um, My personal opinion is that um, if we wanted to go that route, I think that the better play would be for DeSantis then to simply stay in the position of governor in Florida and have his four years and then go into uh, the Trump administration in 2028 when his term expires in some other uh, position other than vice president so that he can still maintain uh, Florida. So a lot of people want them to work together. I think they could work together in a variety of ways. I don't think that there is uh, any way. I I will be shocked if DeSantis ever agreed to v- to be a vice president. I see him as sort of more of the, um, the alpha that wants to be uh, in control of his position. And I don't think, especially with uh, the relationship of what happened uh, between Trump and Pence and how that, I think, really just damaged uh, Pence's ability to uh, to really meaningfully run for office again um, it is my perspective. I just don't see that he has any base support. Um, I think that DeSantis wouldn't want to put himself in that position. And so can they collaborate? Absolutely. And should they? I think that they should. Um, but how does that look? You know, other people are suggesting that Trump um, should really just be more of the um, you know, the manager of the Republican Party and be the kingmaker. And he should uh, endorse DeSantis for the nomination and step back. I don't see that happening either. But, uh, you know, those are all really good questions. They're good possibilities. Um, but how that actually plays out remains to be seen. Um, I've talked with some of DeSantis's people um, actually over the last week who uh, say that there are no plans currently for him to enter uh, the race for the nomination. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think even if he uh, does decide to enter that that's going to happen for another couple months. Um, but we'll see. So a lot of different possibilities. But yes, we should collaborate rather than throwing tomatoes. That's a good slogan. All right. We're all out of time for Jenna Ellis in the morning. Thanks so much for everybody who is calling in. I will see you tomorrow morning. Have a great rest of your day. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.